It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. There goes the fly ball towards left field. Going back fast is Kennedy. Kennedy gets there, and he takes it. And the Cleveland Indians are the world champions of 1948. And they are leaping joyously as they go off the field. Din is being mobbed as our rule Boudreau. And out in center field, Tucker and Kennedy come running in arm in arm. Little tap up in the air, third base side, waiting is Tommy. Foul territory, the game is over. And the Indians have won the divisional title. Indian fans have waited 41 years. And now they can really cheer. Now the pitch. Swung on, lined to deep left field. It is gone! You should see the celebration! Out of the Indians' third base dugout, Rajay Davis, a bullet, two-run homer, down the left field line, clearing the 19-foot wall. We are tied at six. This is Our Tribe History, presented by Progressive. A regular look back at professional baseball history in Cleveland, since 1901 and beyond. Now, here's your host, Indians team historian, Jeremy Fedor. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Our Tribe History, presented by Progressive. I am your host, team historian, Jeremy Fedor. Now, it's been a sad week in baseball, as last week we learned of the passing of Hank Aaron, and uh, I have a few stories, I guess, to kind of tell and the first more just weird coincidence one of my roles with the the indians is helping in the communications department so social media and some of that stuff and i was trying to look for some photos for a throwback thursday on instagram and sure enough i found these great photos of of hank when he who was in town at uh, the old stadium and the photos include him with Kenny Lofton and Albert Bell. So I thought, well, these are pretty neat. Might as well uh, throw them out there. And uh, that was Thursday, and the news came out on Friday. So uh, just really weird timing on that. And then um, I guess I, I have another story, and I, I put it out on Twitter last week as well. Um, so one of the fun parts of my job is you never really know – what you know during season what you're going to have on your plate for the day and we had our frank robinson statue unveiling that was, was a couple of years ago and um i don't know if i learned of it that day or maybe it was a day earlier that i would be charged with uh 
helping Hank that day, getting around, getting where he needed to go. And uh, so, again, one of those things where it's like, all right, you just you know, want me to go help out and hang out with one of baseball's all-time great players? Sure, you know, who's going to say no to that? So I was able to, uh, you know, talk to Hank a little bit. And we drove from the hotel to the ballpark. And the ceremony you know, took place in Heritage Park. And if you're aware of Heritage Park, there's, you know, two uh, levels to it. And uh, Hank wasn't getting around like he used to and needed the use of a wheelchair at times. So to get him down, there's a uh, uh, a ramp, not a ramp, it's like an elevator thing that you kind of get into and it goes down. So we got down and the ceremony went off without a hitch. I was kind of hiding behind one of those uh, pillars that have the plaques on it. There's a few pictures of me kind of looking like a secret agent, at least I think, I don't know, <laughs> or just some dude that was standing there. Um, but, you know, when it was all said and done, I had to help Frank, or Hank get to the suite where the uh, Frank was going to be with his family, and they were going to spend the day watching the game there. So uh, after it was all said and done, I, I get Hank into the lift, and I kind of back us in. And I quickly realized that there's nowhere for me to go. So what I end up doing is kind of like high-legging it over and out because uh, there's, there's these bars that kind of came up to like my waist. So I was stuck in there. And as I lift my leg up to kind of weasel my way out, I hear this huge rip. And I instantly knew that I had ripped the seam of my uh, my dockers. So... Um, you know, I just kind of acted quickly and tied my jacket around my waist because, again, there were fans standing everywhere. And, and I don't know if Hank knew I ripped my pants. If he if he did, he didn't say anything. Um, but I had to uh, react quickly. And uh, then I, I ended up getting Hank to the suite. So I stayed in there just in case I needed anything for the rest of the game. So here I am standing with a huge rip in my pants with two of baseball's all-time greats. So uh, one of those, um, you know, situations where you kind of have to laugh at the uh, humor of it all. I mean, it's it's one of those situations where whoever gets an opportunity to kind of hang around during a, a game like that with these, these, you know, baseball greats, but didn't really want to venture too far from the wall that I was standing by. So uh, that's my, my Hank Aaron story. So, and if you follow me on Twitter, you can see the picture. We, I was lucky enough to get a few photos um, during that day with me next to Hank. So again, there's a lot of cool aspects of my job um, that pop up here and there that are unforeseen, but um, really fortunate to take part in that. And then I guess another weird or coincidence is that this week's episode, which had been planned for a while was about Cleveland's home run king and you know who's worn that crown now we know that currently it's Jim Tomey he's Cleveland's all-time home run king uh my favorite player as a a kid and uh you know he hit 337 home runs as a member of the tribe um but you know really wanted to know more about the players who had held the crown before Jim and this actually started off as a blog post a couple of years ago on our Tribe Vibe blog. Um, and I thought, well, maybe I can expand this and make it a little more interesting. I'm not sure how many people read it. I mean, I thought it was fun and interesting, but uh, I don't know how many people 
actually stopped by and checked it out. So if you haven't, here's uh, this will be new to you. And I guess the first thing we needed to do is kind of backtrack and figure out you know, who was the first home run king of Cleveland. Uh, obviously, it was clearly the first person to hit a home run when the club started in 1901. I guess we'll take a long view here. It's, this was kind of easy because there there's such long gaps in like the home run uh, title, uh, as you'll see later on, that early, those early years, it bounces back and forth, but then it kind of hits a lull, and I think over the course of almost ooh, 70, 80 years or something, my math is not good, it, it just stayed with three guys. So we're going to travel back to April 25th, 1901, just the second game in franchise history. So we've only been one game in our history without a home run king. I'm not sure... That's I'm sure someone hit a home run in the first game of a franchise. I'd have to look. But we were playing the White Sox, and Cleveland had just knocked out five hits, three of those hits being uh, extra base hits, and that included that first home run. So taking a lead into the top of the second, a gentleman named Irv Beck stepped to the plate and made history, becoming the first home run king in Cleveland history. Now the plain dealer wrote that Beck swatted the first ball that John Skopek threw over the right field fence for a home run. The, the Chicago Tribune's recap is a bit more descriptive. It said, Beck cut loose in the second inning with a liner straight over the fence. Jones turned and sprinted for it as far as the fence would allow, but he would have had to go to Wentworth Avenue. So again, now we have our, our home run king. Uh, Beck was a, a native of Toledo and played one season with Cleveland. Now, fittingly enough, or according to his obituary, Irv was nicknamed Home Run Dutch. So our first home run king had a fitting nickname. But as the season progressed, another player joined Beck to share the crown. And it wasn't until June 15th that Cleveland smacked another home run. So again, that early uh, 1901 season, guys weren't... uh, hitting the ball too far or running fast enough to get any sort of inside the park home runs. But this time it was third baseman, Bob Wood. And I I believe we talked about Wood in the previous podcast about walk-offs, but during the sixth inning, Wood stepped up to the plate and this was in Washington. And according to the plane dealer, it said Wood knocked the low, low, long, low fly to right and the ball rolling under the clubhouse. He walked home. The Washington times noted that, In the sixth, Wood landed on a high ball and sent it tearing through a rain cloud in the direction of the right field. It landed some 50 feet from the clubhouse and calmly rolled under the piazza, while several hired men on the Manning staff watched it. Wood, in the meantime, cantered home with a four-bagger to his credit, while up in the last row of the grandstand, manager Manning uh, recalled that he had intended only the day before to have that space closed up. Just to think if that game had been a tie... Uh, up to that time, the wood hit. So that ball kind of found a, a hole that needed to be boarded up in the Washington ballpark. But nevertheless, Wood had tied Irv Beck. So uh, we have two men now claiming the crown of Cleveland's home run king. As I mentioned before, uh, the game recaps from this early part of, of baseball history, or I guess not really early when you consider how far baseball goes back, but still early to, to what we consider now. Um, the, the recaps offer these funny or interesting stories, and this one mentioned one from Bob Wood, too. It said, 
a foul ball or a foul from Woods bat in the eighth inning won to the grandstand and struck a young man on the nose, causing the blood to flow. The next pitch ball was fouled in almost identical the same position, whereupon a gray-haired man leapt to his feet and wanted to fight Wood if the trick was repeated. Um, it reminds me of a story, actually. I think there was a guy at the ballpark that caught four foul balls in one game, and someone figured out the odds of that are next to impossible. But the story of uh, a fan taking a ball to the nose and almost taking another one and some old, you know, gray, oh, then it'd be old, I guess, just gray-haired man wanting to fight wood is, uh, you know, one of those tidbits of history that would have been lost had not the uh, Washington paper printed that story. So I got a, a little chuckle out of it and figure I would repeat it. And then three days later, Irv Beck retook the lead with a home run off of the Philadelphia A's Hall of Fame pitcher, Eddie Plank. Now, if you're ever in Gettysburg, they have a, a bar out there called Gettysburg Eddie, um, Eddie Plank being from Gettysburg. I'm not sure if you've had a chance to go out there. I was out there for a vintage baseball tournament a while ago and, uh, you know, throwing that out there, a little baseball history. The Plain Dealers recap of that story, it says, Cleveland found pitcher Plank's curves just about to their taste this afternoon and hammered the wall for 14 hits with a total of 19 bases which combined with loose fielding by the Athletics gave them nine runs. And Beck ended the 1901 season and his Cleveland career. He ended up jumping to the Reds the following season with a grand total of six home runs and the title of Cleveland's home run champion at the time, at least. So now hot on uh, Beck's tail was Cleveland native Bill Bradley. The slugging third baseman overtook Beck with the seventh home run the following year on May 29, 1902, as Cleveland took on Washington in D.C. Now, recapping Bradley's day, the Plain Dealer noted that Bradley was the most fortunate of the Blues in getting to Orth's offering. He singled once and, on another occasion, added to his home run column by winging the sphere over the left field fence. Now, you don't get sports writing like that anymore, winging the spear. But Bradley ended up wearing the crown for the rest of the season, and he wasn't challenged until the following season. So we have a little bit of a, a pattern showing up. The gentleman to challenge Bradley was Charlie Hickman. I clicked his saber bio real quick and saw that his father's name was Isaac Newton Hickman. Now, that's got nothing to do with anything. I just thought it was a... A heck of a name, Isaac Newton Hickman. So that was Charlie's father. But he ended up tying Bradley with his 16th home run on August 22nd, 1903. And here the paper said, But from a batting standpoint, there were many features and red-hot ones at that. Stalwart Charlie Hickman was there with that long wagon tongue of his and not satisfied with making a long two-bagger one which would have entitled him to three bases had not ground rules been in force. Uh, the game had overflow capacity, so fans standing behind a roped area where they would you know, try to fill in to make some extra money, uh, if the ball rolled in, it would be a double. So they said that it probably should have been a triple, but nevertheless, um, he drove the ball over the center field fence in the third inning. And so the two battled back and forth until June 16, 1906, when Bradley surpassed Hickman with number uh, 25. The Philadelphia paper said, Bradley securing a home run and three singles, every one of them as clean as they can make them. While the plain dealer's description of the story said, Bradley succeeded in making first homer in two years. 
So I guess you can call that a little bit of a drought. He didn't hit one for an entire season in between. Bradley, who drove one of Bender's low ones over the left field fence, the ball nearly entering an open window on the house just outside. It was the first home run made by a Clevelander at home this season and the first home run made by Bradley since the season of 1904. Bradley once enjoyed the honor of leading the American League in home runs, but for two years he had been content with singles and doubles. This year he had not made many of the latter, but yesterday was his day for hitting. So again, he kind of took 1905 off from hitting home runs and decided to hit singles and doubles. But that was, uh, Bradley ended up finishing his Cleveland career with 27 home runs and Hickman with 26. So Bill Bradley then wore the uh, the crown for uh, a little bit. Now claiming the crown two seasons later was future Hall of Famer Nap Lajoie. Nap swatted number 28 on May 26, 1910 in Boston. The paper ended up saying Lajoie makes home run. Frenchman drives in all the runs made by the Clevelanders. But for Lajoie and that stick of his, the scoring would have been very blank indeed for Cleveland. This wonderful ball player and swatter scored the first run with a single, following Kruger's two-bagger in the fourth, and he drove the ball into the left field bleachers for a home run with Turner on first in the sixth. The Boston Globe said, The finest hit of the season was made by Lajoie, who came to bat in the sixth, with one man on and stung the ball dead on in the center, sending it into the left field bleachers. There's only one Lajoie in the business when it comes to fierce line drives, and the one yesterday was classed as a gem. I don't know if they were you know, harping on, on Lajoie because he was a New Englander or just because he was uh, you know, one of the best players in the game, but you know, a nice little write-up about Knapp's home run. And Knapp ended up finishing his Cleveland career with 33 home runs, uh, last being in 1913. It wasn't until the 1921 season when the torch would be passed to another player. On May 18, 1921, Elmer Smith surpassed Lajoie in the record books with his 34th franchise home run. Smith, most notable for his World Series Grand Slam, would finish his Cleveland career with a total of 46 home runs. And to recap that home run that sent him into the record books, paper said Smith's home run helps Indians defeat Athletics in first game 4-2. Victory advances Tribe to first place in race. Unfortunately, Cleveland was not able to hold on to first place in 1921 and, and failed to repeat as AL pennant winners, but I digress. It said Urban Faber and Elmer Smith yesterday collaborated in a sketch that sent the Indians back into first place, a spot they were unable to call their own for a few days. While Faber and his colleagues were trouncing New York and Chicago, Smith was lifting a perfectly good combination of yarn, cork, and leather over the right field wall, thus enabling Cleveland defeated enabling Cleveland defeated the Athletics 4-2. Yesterday's victory was unusual for the reason it was the first time since Ed Rommel had been hurling for the Athletics that the Indians have been able to score four runs off him. They did not score four runs off him in 33 innings pitched in 1920, which didn't really matter because they won the title, right? (laughs) Now they have jolted one jinx. They may trounce Erickson and Washington someday. Another paper, the Altoona Tribune, said Elmer Smith's homer wins for the Indians. Elmer Smith's home run over the right field wall with speaker on base won today's game for Cleveland from Philly 4-2, to and the Indians regaining first place in the pennant race. So, again, big-time home run from Elmer, um, getting Cleveland back into that pennant race of 1921. 
Now, on October 3rd, 1921, it was Elmer's last home run as a member of Cleveland. So he kind of, again, padded his uh, home run crown record. And it's Elmer Smith's final... Uh, actually, what's funny about that is the newspaper um, had a, a little bit of a joke on it. It said, Elmer Smith comes 43 home runs of tying Babe Ruth's record for the season. So 1921, Babe hit uh, 43 more home runs than Elmer. And I kind of like the tongue-in-cheek headline there. And it wasn't much more than three years later that another Baseball Hall of Famer took the mantle, and that was Tris Speaker, where in 1924 he socked his 47th home run as a member of the Indians to take his place in franchise history. And that game took place on April 27th when Cleveland and St. Louis combined for 19 runs and 23 hits. Now it was during the top of the second that Speaker took Elam Van Glider deep to take the crown. The paper said the Cleveland home run was made by Tris Speaker in the second inning when Stevenson was on second as a result of his single and an error by Jacobson. The manager's poke was the final and most potent one of a rain of hits that were manufactured out of a material set up to the plate by Elam Van Glider, long and lean Herculean pitcher of the Browns. And Speaker ended up finishing his Cleveland career with a grand total of 73 home runs in an Indians uniform. His last home run as a member of Cleveland came in a 3-2 loss to the Red Sox on September 20th, 1926. Now, they were down 2-1 going to the ninth, and Speaker took a Ted Wingfield pitch deep to right field for a home run to tie the game, but uh, Cleveland was unable to come back and ended up losing in the 10th inning. And, and as the story goes, the uh, Great Eagles franchise record did not last long, because another Hall of Famer took the crown, and that was in 1932. So less than a decade later, um, Averill, in his fourth full season in the majors, he, uh, in his first three, hit 18, 19, and then 32 in his first three seasons. But this uh, took place in the midst of a winning streak, and the Tribe was taking on the White Sox, looking for their four-game sweep. So on May 1st, 1932, when he hit the ball over the right field fence at League Park, he ended up taking the crown away from Speaker. And uh, the paper said, Earl Averill has five home runs in 18 games, which makes his prediction that he'll knock 36 this year look not so bad. At a rate of five every 18 games, he'll have 43 when the season ends. Earl ended up hitting uh, 32 again for the season, so he did not end up with uh, 43. And then he ended up finishing his Cleveland career with 226 home runs. So, by far the uh, biggest mountain to climb since the home run chase began back in 1901. The Boston Globe described his last home run. Uh, they said it was just a little too much early April for the Red Sox at the Indians Park today without the hitting of the fellow on whom waivers were recently asked. Uh, so he was he was on waivers, but again, it, it mentioned uh, that he'd be uh, kind of beat him up a little bit. But they said... That second Cleveland merry-go-round started with uh, Webby's hit. Uh, and then there was another hit, and Averill socked the ball far over the right field wall. So until uh, 1996, Earl Averill was the Cleveland home run champion. So that's why I say that it um, you know, made it a lot easier to kind of track this stuff down because you have this large window of one guy holding uh, the record and it didn't change, you know, in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. Now, it wasn't without trying 
Hal Trotsky ended up with 216, so he got close. Larry Doby with 215. Andre Thornton hit 214, and Al Rosen with 192. So there were um, some threats to the the home run title, but no one quite got that close. And uh, we ended up going to 1996, where Albert Bell would end up surpassing Earl Averill. So again, that was a a 64-year reign as uh, Cleveland's home run king, and Earl ended up earning a place in the Baseball Hall of Fame. And then, like I said, displacing the Earl of Sonomish, as was his nickname, was 2016 Indians Hall of Famer Albert Bell. And Bell hit number 227 and 228 on July 25th, 1996, off the Baltimore Orioles. And then looking at the recap, it you know our, our same same writer Paul Hoynes mentioned um, that the power was on display last night in the Indians' 10 to 7 victory over Baltimore Camden Yards. In the game in which he became the most prolific home run hitter in Indians history, Bell homered in his first two at-bats, giving him 34 for the season. And he has a quote from Mike Hargrove saying, You've got to be impressed with anyone who hits the ball like Albert does. I believe Albert is one of the best right-handed hitters in the game today. I'm talking about overall hitters. And here we have the audio of Albert's home runs. All the rain, but scored easily. Albert swings at the first pitch, drives at the deep center field. Anderson to the wall, forget about it. Touch him all time for Albert Bell. And the Indians lead it three to nothing. Number 33 for Albert, RBIs 92 and 93. Now that didn't take long. Albert Bell jumping on the first offering from Rocky Coppinger and the Orioles woes continue here in Baltimore. Boy, uh, looked like a breaking ball about Bell tying out over the plate. This ballpark, like Jacobs Field, has that power alley out toward right center field, which is a jet stream. Another home run for Albert Bell. Here's the 0-2, and Bell hacks at it. There it goes to right field on 0-2. Bonilla chasing. It is gone again. Bell clubs it out of here to right center field. Coppinger challenging Albert with that high fastball with two strikes on him. And Albert Bell has whacked it on out of here for home run number 34 this season. His second in the last half hour. And Albert finished his Cleveland career with a total of 242 home runs taking Kansas City Royals' Chris Haney deep in a 5-4 Cleveland win on September 28, 1996. It took Albert only 855 games to reach that uh, 242 home runs, uh, as opposed to Earl Averill, who took 1,597. So Albert was a little bit more of a prolific home run hitter uh, than Earl, but again, times were, were changing. And Albert's reign did not last long as Jim Tomey was hot on his heels. Tomey slammed home run 243 on May 29, 2001 at Detroit. Now Cleveland was down 2-1 to one and Tomey's blast tied the game and helped the Indians defeat the Tigers 6-4. to four. The Cleveland Plain Dealer reported that Jim Tomey, slipping out of character, drank champagne last night. I'm more of a Bud Light guy, said Tomey. Recalling his first... I remember the first one I hit, said Tommy, who was tied with Albert Bell going into the game. It came off Steve Farr at Yankee Stadium. 
I used Joel Skinner's bat. He had a better bat or wood than me because he was a veteran. And again, we've shared Tommy's first home run uh, on social before, and it's it's you know fun to see these guys when they're rookies starting out. And, and Tommy's at Yankee Stadium; it was a pretty pretty good hit. But here we have the audio of Jim's record-setting home run. Jim Tomey will lead off the fourth inning for the Tribe. Hit in the air pretty well to left. Going back is Ryan Jackson on the track at the wall. Goodbye baseball. Hello record book. Jim Tomey has now become the Cleveland Indians all-time home run leader. The 243rd of his career. And and Tomey ended up playing with, with several teams and reached that 600 home run plateau that's you know, at 500, it's the automatic Cooperstown, it seems. Um, but he hit 600 and came back to Cleveland for uh, his second stint where he ended up hitting a few more home runs and put that would put him at 337. And that 337th took place on September 23rd, 2011 at home against uh, Carl Pavano in the bottom of the third. And here's the audio for that home run. Here's Jim Tomey. Right now on the scoreboard, they've got a the artist's rendering of the Jim Tomey statue would look like. And that will happen once Jim Tomey officially retires as a player. Here's a drive to deep center. Revere back. Running out of room. It's gone. Jim Tomey with another incredible chapter in his storybook career. On the night they pay tribute to him here at Progressive Field, he hits another mammoth home run. And there you have it. That's kind of the rundown of Cleveland's home run uh, champion or king or whatever you want to call him. Um, I I think Jim might hold that record for a while now. It'll be interesting to see um, when we have someone get close to it. I know Carlos Santana for a while was creeping close, but nowhere near um, Jim's 337 home runs as a member of Cleveland. And I hope you enjoyed that episode of Our Tribe History presented by Progressive. We'll be back again soon with another episode um, on the topic. I'm not sure. Maybe we'll do walkouts. Maybe we'll do something else interesting. Uh, we'll see if you have any suggestions or comments. Please feel free to tweet at me, send me a message, or um, get a hold of me somehow. And I'd be happy to to take suggestions and um, till then, go tribe. You've been listening to Our Tribe History presented by Progressive with your host, Indians team historian, Jeremy Fedor.